This is episode 23 of the Get In My Garden podcast. Listen up, today we have another very special episode. The subject is controlled environment agriculture. We meet Charlie Schultz, a researcher, farmer, and teacher, a pioneer in the field of aquaponics and lead faculty in the very impressive controlled environment agriculture program at Santa Fe Community College. Charlie began working with fish and plants as an undergraduate at Virginia Tech while double majoring in biology and fishery science. His work has sent him to many locations, including 14 years at the University of the Virgin Islands in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands, where he researched indoor aquaponics production and its many facets from nutrition and system economics. We will cover a lot of topics from aquaponics systems versus hydroponic systems, their economics, food security and water supply challenges the world faces today, and how these controlled environment agriculture systems are the solution. There is so much going on at the school right now with startups, private and government investments, and major expansion projects underway. It is really impressive to see, and more than once on the show today, Charlie will invite you, the listener, to visit. Please call me at 505-699-0585, and I will arrange tours at the facility for our listeners. Towards the end of the interview, Charlie will tell us about the scope and curriculum of the Controlled Environment Agriculture Program, course offerings for those seeking degrees, and also course offerings for those interested in multi-day continuing education information-packed workshops. Subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast on iTunes, leave positive reviews if you like the show, and reach out to me with feedback. Back in the late 80s, I had one of those light bulb moments that drove me into my career, and it was actually medical waste that washed up on our seashore. So in the late 80s, I had a diet of birds and fish, I took red meat out of my diet just, you know, from health conscious reasons, um, started eating a lot of birds and fish. And then I saw in the nightly news, uh, medical waste washing up on our seashore. And that light bulb went off that this big, open, expansive environment that we all thought was a, a infinite resource of clean, pristine water was a potential contamination point. So we saw this medical waste. And what the hospitals were doing back then was dumping their waste out of sight, out of mind. Wow. Um, dilution is the solution to pollution. We know this is persistent, and it washed up on our seashore. And we have graphic images of needles and IV bags. And at that moment, I said, I cannot eat a fish out of the ocean anymore. Um, so my focus at that moment was growing fish, which is aquaculture. I wanted to be trained in growing fish in controlled environments, which would be indoors, where I know the water source, I know the feed inputs. And so I focused my career at that time on growing fish in these controlled environment systems. Um, that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of I got into aquaculture first. There's lots of ways we can grow fish, so ponds, raceways, out mm-hmm. in the ocean, or you could go indoors in buildings. Did you, while you were in the islands, did you experiment with ocean culture or growing them in the uh, ocean? No, we, uh, we, so after I, I got that moment, I did go to school at Virginia Tech. Oh, okay. I got two bachelor degrees, which kind of helped, um, helped my career. Um, I always encourage my students, don't just get the one degree, mm-hmm. but get at least a minor. And if you can double major, then you kind of float above the rest of the applicants for a job because you've got two majors. I also had experience. I started playing with fish and plants. And this was in the late 80s when nobody even knew what aquaponics was. Yeah. The word wasn't popular like it is today. Um, So I ended up, um, I needed a job. I wanted a job in aquaponics, but there was no job in aquaponics. 
So I ended up taking a job at the University of Georgia where I worked to develop transgenic fish or genetically modified fish. Uh, this was not for the food industry though. This was for toxicology purposes, um, basically looking to replace a lab rat with a lab fish. Oh. And for a lot of reasons, it's a better model. Um, I don't have to sacrifice a rat. I can take a fin clip off the back of a fish, extract the DNA, look for mutations. And we were using these fish to um, put into an environment, like uh, maybe downstream from a, a nuclear plant or a coal plant that are discharging their waste into oh, the river okay. system. If the DNA of my fish mutated, then that's probably a cancer-causing environment. So we could correlate it to human impacts. Um, so I really wasn't happy with uh, not growing food, uh, but I was caring for a lot of fish. Uh, but I kept my eyes on the Virgin Islands. This was the only research institute in the U.S. and really in the world at that time that was doing work with aquaponics, where we oh. integrate fish culture and plant production. The, a position came up in the Virgin Islands. I applied. I got my dream job, and I ended up staying about 13 years. Um, predominantly there, we worked with tilapia. Uh -huh. um, tilapia is the third most consumed seafood by Americans right now, so it's very popular, very marketable. Um, so we work predominantly with uh, tilapia. And your question was, did we work with sea fish? Um, yeah. Tilapia is a fish we call a urihaline fish. So it goes into the river and the ocean? It has the ability to take full-string seawater or freshwater. So we did a few projects with sea cages. Oh. Um, again, that wasn't my drive, was to use this open environment. I was still concerned. Um, in the Caribbean, we have cruise ships that dump their waste. Wow. We had a, um, uh, the largest oil refinery in this hemisphere on our island that often discharged their waste into our, our open systems. From Venezuela? Uh, yeah, so oil oh. would come from Venezuela to St. Croix to get refined to move up to the East Coast. Wow. Um, and then, you know, since then, we, we have things like Fukushima radiation. Yes. You know, people are, are afraid. They say that that plume has come all the way to the western side of the U.S. So we have that. Um, every day I get a a bad press story about our open systems. Uh, last year it was the fish coming off of the western coast, the salmon off of the Washington state or Alaska fisheries, were testing positive for um, for estrogens. Mm -hmm. That comes from the Plastics birth control or... pet, oh, okay. that our community uses. When we pee, it flushes through the system, the waste treatment system. It's not treated. It stays in the system. Mm -hmm. Now it's in our fish. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I had the headline came across that the same region, Washington State, Alaska, Oregon, the salmon that were being caught off of those uh, coasts were now testing positive for opioids. So this whole issue of farm fish versus open wild fish, to me, it's a no-brainer. Gotcha. I don't trust the wild system anymore. Um, I can go in a controlled environment. I can give them the optimum diet. I can work with optimum genetics, give them the optimum water quality, the optimum stocking rate. And often when I harvest my fish, I have 100% survival. Through my career in 20-plus years, I probably have 98% survival on my fish. So best husbandry practice is the mm -hmm. most important thing for me. So you're focused on the fish first and then later exactly. all the other benefits. So with uh, as we get into aquaponics here and talk a little bit more, there's a consensus um, across the professionals in the industry right now that aquaponics belongs in the hands of the aquaculturist. It belongs in the hands of fish farmers because paramount to running these systems is I have to keep my fish healthy and happy. Um, and to simplify it, I tell my students now often that, you know, if you can just keep an aquarium in your house, 
balance the chemistry right, then you'll do fine with aquaponics. Not, that's so much easier said than done. It is. I've tried right? and I've messed it up. Um, and with that in mind, the, the smaller systems I find are harder to manage than a big system. I see. A, your 20-gallon aquarium at home is very difficult. You're always watching your pH and your chemistry. Um, when I can run a 20,000-gallon system, it's still the same management as watching my chemistry, but there's a huge buffer. I and see. these systems are resilient and they kind of stay solid um, and the fish and the plants both thrive. I think that's what people see. When they go to YouTube, there are some people that are saying that they struggled, you know, or something happened really quickly where pH changed and their fish didn't survive and they give up. Yeah. So I think that's it. They're just working such a small system. Yeah, and I think that, um, as you and I have talked about, there's a rise in popularity of aquaponics. It's a hot topic right mm -hmm. now. It's sexy. Um, but when my students come to my class, I do focus some on aquaculture. Let's keep the fish happy. So they have a very good understanding of things like pH and temperature. Um, we can look at nutrients as well. But really, for the fish, I'm concerned about the basics, ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate pH and temperature. So the same thing you would deal with on your aquarium at home, it's the same thing I deal with on a very big scale here. And if we have that understanding, then we don't see things fluctuate. I see. Like you said, it's uh, for many people, it's risky. And a lot of people have lost their system over to a crash. Yeah. Um, again, I've done this 20 plus years and I'm looking at 98% survival because I have a good understanding of what it means uh, to, to be sustainable. Uh, and part of that is energy. Right? We have to give the bubbles, the aeration to the fish. Yeah. Um, the plants also use the oxygen, but the fish, it's critical. So when I tell my students that I have a backup and then a backup to the backup and then a backup to the backup to the backup, they all laugh. But when we walk around the systems, I start showing them here's the backup and here's the backup to the backup. And for redundancy and risk mitigation, I've got a third generator in place that I can just roll out at the last minute. And all I need to do is plug in the aeration system to keep the fish alive with bubbles. Cool. It sounds See. like an airplane. They say there's five levels of redundancies to make sure that the airplane okay. still flies. <laughs> and my dad was a pilot, so his saying was, Toyota, think ahead of the airplane. So I often think about what could happen, what are my failure points, oh, cool. and I make sure to address them ahead of time. That makes sense. So yeah. can you speak a little bit to the difference? I mean, obviously... There's a huge difference between hydroponics and aquaponics, but with hydro, can you still get a similar closed loop without the fish? Okay, yeah, so let me uh, back up. It's kind of the first day of my class. I do the uh -huh. same thing. You know, I say, you guys, what we do here is I grow food with soilless culture. Okay, and I have no soil on this whole farm. I've got a couple of raised beds in the community garden, mm -hmm. the campus garden, but in my program, everything we do is grow our plants in water without the use of soil. And that's a controversy in itself. Some right. People, a lot of people are really organics and this kind of thing. They say the magic's in the soil. But the way I see it, I can grow plants without soil, uh -huh. but I cannot grow plants without water. Right. To me, water is magic. When we go look for life forms on other planets, we're looking for water. There's a lot of soil, but the soil is not the magic. It's the water. Um, and then uh, when I moved to St. Croix, the reason aquaponics developed there and also in Australia, because there was a lack of fresh water. In St. Croix, we got very little rainfall. The wells were all salty because it's an island. I had no surface water. So I had to conserve every drop of water. And this was um, now almost 20 years ago. And around the world, we didn't see this water crisis that we do now. 
we just went through one of the worst droughts here in New Mexico in a long time. And so to think about trying to farm with acequias and flooding fields with water that discharge out the backside or leach into the groundwater evaporate. or evaporate, that's just not the wisest use of our water. Um, I am not, I didn't come to New Mexico to change culture. I still think that acequia farming has a place in our culture. But if we're going to have food security and food safety, we need to be growing more in controlled environments and caring for our resources. And water is the precious resource right now. Yeah. So everything I do, um, I like to say we're drip wise. Um, I'm a zero discharge facility. Mm -hmm. If I release some sludge from some of my tanks with some fish waste, I mineralize that sludge and I reuse it, whether it's in my compost or on my orchard around the farm here. Or I can mineralize it to nutrients and put it back in my system. So I'm very careful for my water use. So the reason we pick the soilless culture is for this water conservation. And so here at the school, we do two things. We do what we call traditional hydroponics mm -hmm. and we do aquaponics. Both are hydroponic systems. But I, I preface the one with traditional hydroponics. And what we do with those systems is we make nutrient solutions out of chemical salts or fertilizers, right. right? I'm using water-soluble fertilizers that dissolve completely in the water, and we make recipes for whatever crop we may want to grow. So my students may want to um, specialize in lettuce production. So we pick a fertilizer recipe for lettuce. We learn how to make that fertilizer at different strengths. Maybe different stages of the lettuce needs a different fertilizer strength or a different tailored recipe. Um, all the way up to cannabis. So mm -hmm. cannabis is a legal market on the medical side. A lot of my students get those jobs because they have a degree in controlled environment agriculture, but they have to look for a recipe for cannabis. So you have a recipe for the vegetative stage. You have a recipe right. for the flowering and fruiting stage. So they have to understand how to make the recipes out of chemical fertilizers. All right, that's traditional hydroponics. And that's the standard in the industry, mm -hmm. even the vegetable industry, the flower industry, anything uh, hydroponic related, the standard way to grow is conventional fertilizers. I see. Um, aquaponics, on the other hand, derives its nutrients from fish waste. So I never add chemical fertilizers to an aquaponic system. I feed the fish. Okay. Okay. And then I manage the pH. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I do add often to a aquaponic system is iron. Iron's just not available in the fish feed because the fish don't need it as much as the plants. So I'll have, I have many options for adding iron. We'll add it every three weeks and have good success. You asked me about the potential for traditional hydroponics to be closed loop mm -hmm. systems, and that's definitely doable. So we, um, we work with a lot of systems here. I'd like mm -hmm. to see a little bit more on the organic hydroponic side, which not necessarily aquaponics, but what about using worm teas and compost mm -hmm. teas? So I can make a nutrient solution off of resources that came from a waste from another industry, and then we can make these a closed loop system that are thriving with beneficial bacteria and microbes, producing plant growth regulators, hormones that really accelerate plant growth, but still an organic system. So there are ways we can do that. Now, how does it work when you're dealing with, I mean, you showed me the wicking chambers, so does that make it possible to have a different uh, microbial situation, like with more fungi and things like that? Absolutely. Or, and how does that work with when, when it's completely submerged, when the roots are totally in water? I can take samples off of what we call a dual root zone, which is kind of like your wicking bed, where 
I could grab samples from the water in a, in a wicking bed that's being delivered. I can grab samples around the root zone. Right. And we can see that there's aquatic microbiology driving the system. There's also soil microbiology in these systems. Um, and so um, one of the ones you mentioned is a mycorrhiza. So that's yeah. a fungi that's a beneficial fungi. If you don't, if you're... Um, your listeners don't know, um, they often colonize the root zone, the rhizosphere of a plant, and they end up sending a huge mycelium network away yes. from the roots. I, I'm sure you understand this from mm -hmm. your work. Um, so uh, consider a forest system. A forest is very heavily fungal dominated. Yeah. You've got a lot of mycorrhizae fungi around the roots, and they can go out for miles and grab the phosphorus or the nutrients that this right. plant needs, and they can transport it all the way back to the plants. Because, as you know, we're not out in the forest hand-watering and fertilizing these trees. Right. They're getting it from somewhere, though. It's that beneficial relationship. Um, the roots exudate carbon and other um, exudates that the fungi thrive on. So it's a beneficial system there. That's and the so, question for me, though. Exactly. So I've always wondered. see that. So we're getting young students identifying mycorrhizae in a water-based solution, not just the wicking bed. Um, so as we got into the organic issue uh, with water-based versus non-water-based, uh, we started looking at all the research out there on microbial populations and hydroponic systems. And even what we consider a sterile hydroponic system is not sterile. Right. There's billions of bacteria in these right. systems. We've even found mycorrhizae fungi in what we call a sterile hydroponic system. Well, some of them live within the roots, right? So exactly. Instead of outside, so they still could probably... So it totally makes sense that it's there. Yeah. My, my issue is it's, it's probably at a lower population level uh -huh. because we don't need that kind of benefit to grab nutrients from right. water sources to bring them back right to there. the plant because my plants are being bathed in the optimal nutrition. Mm -hmm. So I tell my students, I said, once we learn how to make these recipes and these fertilizer solutions for our crops, or we're using aquaponics, the plants shouldn't show deficiencies. If they did the right job making the recipe and blending everything at the right levels, then the plant should be getting optimal nutrition. And that's why often we hear hydroponics, I can grow faster, um, I can get shorter turnaround crops, I get safer crops. Um, when I do aquaponics especially, because of the bacteria, the microflora in our system, so I've seen some farms and hydroponic facilities be wiped out by disease, and less than a mile away I've got an aquaponic system that's resilient. So wow. we've got this benefit. So for beginners, sometimes they hear bacteria and they hear fungi, and they think it's a bad thing. But no, there's a lot of very good beneficial bacteria and microbes that we want in our system. And so what we see with aquaponics, too, is when I start an aquaponic system, I go get a, a tank and I get some fish. Maybe I want to start with goldfish just to get my hands wet and understand what I'm doing. I start growing some lettuce or some basil. Um, the bacteria haven't really established, and it really takes a while for them to establish. So we've seen research where um, after year two, the system gets more robust and better production. Year three, more. Per year four, more production, in including higher yields than conventional farming at that point. Uh -huh. So aquaponics is all about a microbial ecosystem, like you said. And can you speak a little bit about algae? Because I know that's good and bad. I mean, you're using it for certain things. Algae is definitely good and bad. Yeah. Um, as one of my teachers described it, it's a double-edged sword. Okay, so if I have a system, and every listener on this podcast is welcome to visit me at the community college. So the algae, in some ways it causes problems in your systems, but also you're using it, right? Okay, so with algae, um, algae is going to grow in the presence of nutrients and sunlight. 
So if you come to my facility, you'll see that I've got areas where the sunlight hits the water, and I'm going to end up with algae. In a balanced aquaponic system where my, I'm feeding the fish and the fish are taking care of the plants, the plants are the filter, so they're taking care of the fish. And that conventional setting, I really don't want the algae. Mm-hmm. So I try to eliminate any exposure of light to my water. So if I've got gaps on the edge of my trough, I may put a piece of tape over there to cover it. Uh, I may do all kinds of things to block out areas where I'm not growing plants at the moment so the sunlight doesn't hit. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is algae will start to grow in that situation. And what the algae is doing is robbing my nutrients. So it's assimilating my nitrogen and my phosphorus and my molybdenum and potassium and iron and everything else. That's what algae needs to live. So it's stealing my nutrients. And then it can become problematic. A filamentous algae can start clogging my roots, can clog my pumps for my water. So it can be very, very unwanted. And it locks up all your nutrients. And the only way to get it out is to feed it to your fish, right? Right. So in that case, um, the way I would get it out is I would be in there daily with my students netting this algae out. It's a nuisance. I don't want it. I see. So if I'm going to look at feeding algae to fish at some point, I'm going to do it in a separate system. So here at SFCC, we're an award-winning algae school. Mm-hmm. We're in a consortium of about 12 universities. Wow. And we are actually, the, I would say, the pioneering university, one of the top three in the nation. Amazing. A lot of the community doesn't know this. So we have a microspirulina farm here on campus. It's run by one of our former students. And we probably have over 10 to 15 strains of algae that we work with. Amazing. We scale them up. We get them in as a test tube in that scale. And we scale them up to tens of thousands of liters for different purposes. So uh, the program started with biofuels. But we see more benefit to human nutrition, animal nutrition, cosmetics, and pharmacology. So there's a lot of benefits. Um, so what we want to do here is look at a algae that's native to our environment that's got a high oil content. So your heart-healthy fatty acids, your omega-3s predominantly. Right. That's what I would like to produce, that algae, and incorporate that into a fish feed. Okay, so this leads into a lot of people come here and they say, why tilapia? And a lot of people complain that it doesn't have the healthy oils. Exactly. So when I look at tilapia, um, tilapia is the most sustainable farm fish we can grow. Um, I can feed about a pound of fish feed to a tilapia and gain about a pound of fish flesh. It's amazing. So that's a one-to-one feed conversion ratio. Okay, so um, you look at other fish that are highly wanted, desirable, maybe a walleye or a perch or a bass. Well, those are carnivores. So we have to feed a lot more fish meal and fish oils to these fish to grow And so the feed conversion ratio may be three to one in that situation. And when we're talking about seven billion people on the planet, soon to be nine billion, we need to look at our resources more wisely. So I'm not going to be growing carnivorous fish. I'm going to pick a fish that's an omnivore, and tilapia is mainly a vegetarian. Tilapia has a very unique uh, eating habit that he has the ability to eat algae. So a tilapia could swim in a green tank full of algae and collect the, the phytoplankton in his mouth form a mucus ball, and actually swallow that and get nutrition and probiotics from that. So tilapia, a couple reasons I use tilapia is the feed conversion ratio. Also the temperature. So the temperature of growing tilapia is ideal for growing commercial um, commodity crops like tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and squash. Everything that we want to grow here for commercial purposes because we're putting the food into our cafeteria. Uh, We're going to be giving a lot to the food bank here. Um, so we want 
the ideal production. If I'm trying to grow tomatoes in 50 degree trout water, they're not going to grow. Mm-hmm. They're going to grow extremely slow. So I need the same temperature requirements, and tilapia is perfect for that. Um, then the last thing is we hear a lot about tilapia being a unhealthy fish. Like you said, whether it's the what we fed them, and they have an inverted omega-6 to omega-3 right. ratio, which can be in, inflammatory, which can actually not be desirable for some people who have these conditions. Um, that all comes about by what we feed the fish. So um, a lot of the diets, because he's a vegetarian fish, have corn and soybean. Um, we here at SSCC, we'd like to get a little bit away from that and start including high oil omega-3 algaes in our diet. So again, you are what you eat. That seems like a great opportunity because yeah, absolutely. people are waking up to that. So if people understand, well, tilapia is a marketable fish, the way I describe the taste and quality of tilapia, it's like the tofu of fish. It's a piece of white meat with no taste whatsoever. Okay, If you buy it from China and you buy it frozen, you may have a bad tasting tilapia. Um, in the U.S., we have the ability to make a wise decision in the market with this law called the Country of Origin Label. Black Soldier Fly, you and I have talked yeah. a little bit about that. We could use Black Soldier Fly to process industrial food waste, which is one of the biggest problems on our planet is our food waste. So why not take Santa Fe's food waste and convert it to a usable compost and larvae that I can feed my fish? A lot of ways around this. So if I can feed my fish a better diet, I can outcompete you in the market by having that poster next to my fish telling people why I do what I do and how I do what I do. What about like, uh, there are a lot of people selling shrimp. Is that part of your, have you ever experimented? So um, we do realize in New Mexico, we have a good ground, a salty groundwater source. Uh-huh. Many regions, you pump that water up and you're saline. Okay, predominantly south of here, but many regions have pockets of saltwater groundwater. This was an ancient seabed at one right. time, right? So in the south of New Mexico, there's a lot of farms that are pumping the salt water up and growing massive amounts of shrimp in ponds. There's also a, a process here called um, bioflock systems, where um, growers in New Mexico are growing shrimp indoors in a zero-discharge system. Right. Um, and so I have supported those farms recently. Um, I met a farmer at one of the farmer's market out in El Dorado, and mm-hmm. he got a value-added USDA grant, and he has to go from farmer's market to farmer's market selling his product and educating people how he does what he does. How is he growing fish sustainably in New, I mean, shrimp in New Mexico? That's almost unheard of. Yeah. Um, so I paid $20 a pound for his shrimp. Like you said, a lot of people don't care. It's about the price is the bottom yes. line. Um, I got a very small Ziploc baggie and handed the man $20, and in a way, I felt like, wow, I didn't get a lot for my money, but I'm supporting the future, future of sustainability and using our resources wisely. But you're right that it's usually price. So in a lot of what I do, I have to create a better product at the same price that we're seeing in the market. Um, fish, for instance, um, over the course of the last 20 years since I've been in business, um, probably 20 years ago, I could get a tilapia filet in the market for $5. And now I could probably get one for $5.40. The price has not gone up. You know, we're living the lap of luxury here. We don't pay a lot for our food. That's true. We don't pay the real price for our food. So as a farmer, um, what I teach my students and my other farmers that I I give workshops to is that do not expect a rise in price in Mm -hmm. your fish. What you have to do is become more efficient. 
and lower your production costs so you make a better profit margin at the end. That makes me think of marijuana too because I'm personally not interested in it, but mm-hmm. so many people are. And the market is gigantic, but the price has to be going down. I mean, everybody's Absolutely. growing it, right? That's right. So where will we be in five years? Yeah. So I, I see, um, I get a lot of calls uh-huh. um, because of the organic potential for aquaponics. A lot of cannabis growers want to do it. That I way. see. Um, California, for instance, just uh, legalized recreational. Part of their new law is a very stringent pesticides uh, safety testing. So most growers are using pesticides. Uh, a lot of them are using a systemic pesticide at the very young stage of their plants um, that at after six months and they're harvesting the plants, that pesticide still shows up. So if you're going to do something pesticide-free, aquaponics would be the way to go. Um, we're not allowed to use pesticides on our crops because it will drift into the water and it will be in our fish tissue and I can't sell the fish or it will kill my fish. I also can't use medications on my fish because that ends up in my plants. So it's a very holistic system that we can't use synthetic fertilizer, uh, pesticides on. Um, so a lot of people are flocking to this. I've looked at business plans recently where two to three years ago in California, the, co- the price of cannabis was $3,000 a pound. Today, it's $300 a pound on the wholesale level. So people's business plans were shot. Of course. And people are having to revisit. Well, if I can go organically with it, use aquaponic systems and brand it, people are willing to pay a little bit more. Okay. So there's, again, that's back to the, it's all about price. But there's also a consumer um, quality where consumers want quality. Definitely. They know that if they buy that product, there's no pesticides on it. That's real value because it keeps them healthy. It keeps their communities and their family healthy. So it's intrinsic. It's not yeah. written in the price, but in the long term, you need to buy the quality. But I mean, compared to a tomato plant or something that is worth $5, right? Yeah. Your cannabis plant is worth today like $300 right. maybe, right? Yeah. But that's going to probably go down to $5. That's what I keep thinking. I, I would think so. You know, as more and more people can grow their own, I mean, mm-hmm. that's a good thing too. Yeah. You know, to take the pharmaceutical company out of the loop. Um, so we will see these price changes. And then at the same time, it's the opposite with food. Food's going to start rising. Do not get used to these low prices in food. Uh, I spent two years in Canada recently as oh, a researcher. Okay. Um, in the middle of the winter, broccoli was about $16 a head. Um, orange juice was sometimes $20 in the very remote northern climates. So to get fresh food, you should be able to capture a niche. When I lived in the Caribbean after 9-11, everything shut down. You know, you were probably yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, airports closed. Yes. Well, what about the food in the Caribbean? It got cut off, and we quickly saw the price of food rising. All right, and let me put it in another perspective. We hear a lot about food safety issues. Over the last year, it's been a lot with lettuce grown in Yuma, Arizona, E. coli's, or salmonella on your cantaloupes. I hate to say it, when I see these examples, it's a marketing opportunity for me. I'm in a controlled environment system. Okay, a lot of your E. coli from Yuma um, is a result of immigrant labor. They're working long, hard hours. They don't stop to use the restroom. They actually use the bathroom right in the field. They don't wash their hands. Food safety issues usually come from the handlers. Yeah. And so when we can take that immigrant mass production out of the equation and we can grow in greenhouses in Santa Fe and directly put our food into the right restaurants that want that local connection, we're not going to see those food safety scares. I told my students after the Yuma outbreak recently, I said, you guys, if you had a farm today, 
the price of your lettuce could have doubled overnight. So we're going to see more and more of the price going up for the farmer. Um, and I think that's the way it should be. Definitely. It's the right thing to do, too. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to, I mean, people here, we should be supporting our local economy. People say they care about foreigners and immigrants, but they're not really caring about them if they're buying the produce that they slaved to pick. That's right. Yeah. It's horrible. And we have the opportunity because we probably import 95% of our food into Santa Fe. There's, you know, the opportunities are wide open. Again, I look at these bad examples as opportunities for us. And we have all the sunshine we need, right? That's right. So we have more sun. So that's another very important part of my program because we're controlled environment agriculture. There's a trend to go in urban settings, go mm-hmm. in buildings that aren't being used, grow indoors. Um, part of my master's work was looking at energy efficiencies and the energy cost of indoor production when you're growing under grow lights. So I did four different types of grow light, looking at the energy. I also looked at what's the quality of our plants. If they're not getting natural sunlight, they're just being grown under fluorescent or high-pressure sodium or induction lights, plasma, LED. Do we still have the same nutritional quality that, yeah. that we would? These are very important questions. Um, To grow indoors sounds great. We may have a lot of unused space in Santa Fe, buildings that aren't even, you know, being housed. Can we grow food in there? Well, what's the energy footprint of that? You know, even if we're looking at solar, uh, you've seen the size of the array at the high school. Yeah. It's a very substantial array. We have one here, too. Should we use the land next to an urban building to put up solar arrays. So now we've taken that land out of use to put solar panels to run grow lights. Right. We, we live in the perfect light Doesn't make situation. much sense to me, but... Right. So we see more trends towards rooftop gardening uh-huh. and farming. Put your greenhouse on top of the roof. Still capture that natural sunlight. So obviously fish is the most calorie dense of the things we've talked about. But other things that, like grains, beans, can these all be done in controlled environments? They can. Um, they're just grown typically on a scale that it probably doesn't behoove me to grow wheat in my greenhouse. Right. I have to look at the cost per square foot that it costs me to run these greenhouses. Um, so I need a niche crop. I need something that's high value. Um, so a, a staple crop, it's probably better to be grown in other regions and shipping it in. Mm-hmm. We look at the carbon footprint of transportation, and that's not a big ding. It's not a big part of the equation as a lot of people think it is. Right. Um, so there are different crops that apply themselves to different areas. Um, you know, there's a, a whole trend towards going plant-based diets. You know, maybe we could take some of the high-protein animal proteins out of our diet. Um, there's also trends to going to more of a local diet. What grows here naturally? You know, asparagus in January is probably not a common crop that our ancestors in New Mexico ate. Right. But they did eat something every January. They preserved their own food, maybe, or they had certain plants that thrived during those seasons. There's different ways we need to look at this. Um, Again, since the 80s, I've kind of understood sustainability of meat production, tried to take some of the meat out of my diet. I've, I've often been attacked by the beef industry because what I'm saying right now really goes against a lot of the corporate mentality. The beef industry is a huge lobby in this uh-huh. country. But it even goes against like the New Mexican ranching culture. Exactly, right. Which, and they will tell you in every way that it's good for the environment. Right, exactly. Like to, These animals you know, are tearing up the soils and, and things like this. Um, I just say that, so I personally, I eat a little bit of everything, uh-huh. except mayonnaise. That's evil. <laughs> um, so, but what I do is I, I shop wisely. If I buy a chicken, I'm going to go to the Santa Fe Farmer's Market, and I'll pay $20 for that chicken, but I'll eat one every two months. 
me and my family. Um, I go and I get a quarter of an elk that a friend makes harvest in the wild. Another friend of mine sustainably grows his cattle, and I'll buy a quarter of that. Same with the pig. So I'm making very wise choices not to support the livestock industry um, with like the livestock slaughterhouses and this kind of thing. That's what I'm against in that yeah. capacity. And so if a, if a livestock um, lobby wants to come talk to me about how keeping cows is a benefit to the planet, I'm an open mind. I listen to all sides of the story. And I'm not preaching. I don't tell anybody what they should do. Yeah. I try to convince people that this planet needs some help. And we well, can make wise decisions to solve these problems. Yeah, I think everybody who's listening will understand the problems that we're facing. A lot of those problems with chemicals and factory farming and all that. Well, so I guess one last question. like, If we are fast-forwarding 20 years and we do have much, much, much higher prices of food potentially and – people are going to utilize some of the technologies that you're using here, aquaponics, what is a simple thing that might exist in someone's home? Like might people have uh, tilapia tanks in their backyard? Yeah, so I would like to, um, again, encourage anybody to come visit. Okay, I say I'm always recruiting. So just sitting here talking to you, if I can plant some seeds in the community to come over here and see what we do if you don't know. Uh, we also have a pretty big presence online. I've got a Facebook group called Controlled Environment Agriculture oh, at cool. SFCC. We have great websites. Um, but I would encourage you to come see because what we do is we work on every scale. I work on a home scale system all the way up to a commercial system. Great. So one of the easiest systems for a home scale, it's called an IBC. So intermediate bulk containers are these square tanks that you often see on the back of a pickup truck with a metal cage around it. Oh, yeah. It. So your consumer or your listeners here can pull up IBC aquaponics on the internet and get some visuals. So it's a very small tank. It's about a 300-gallon tank. Um, I cut the top third off, and I flip it over, and there's my grow bed suspended over a fish tank. So we have these here at, on camp. You can come look at. Um, I did the math the other day. What I try to do is figure out how much can I feed these systems. And I want a feeding rate where my water quality is fine for the fish. So the bacteria can assimilate the nitrogen and convert it to nitrates, which is plant food. When I set up a system, I need to design it so I have a set feed rate that keeps good water quality for my fish. And, it, and I see no nutrient deficiencies for my plants. So we've been running one now for about six months. And I calculated the feed cost the other day, four cents a day. It's what I throw in, just about 16 grams of fish feed in there. The fish grow protein. They waste nutrients for my plants, four cents a day. Um, the small pump that I have and the light probably don't run more than 20 cents a day. Less than a quarter a day, I have fresh food, and you've seen it. Yeah. I, I, I set mine up as a perpetual harvest. I have one uh, set up now with a lot of beet greens. Every Friday, I harvest my beet greens. I'm not so concerned about the beet at the moment. Mm -hmm. I want the greens. They're very nutritious. I come back the next Friday, and they're thriving, ready for harvest again. Come back next Friday, same thing. So I don't have the extra expense of seedlings and always transplanting and harvesting. I'm doing the same thing with the red vein sorrel in that system, mustard greens, chard as well. That's so awesome. they're called cut-and-come-again crops. So mm -hmm. we can start on a very small scale and, again, much bigger scale. Well, I think if the economic situation requires it, people will all have these. Right. And I think that, again, controlled environments. I, pre I would prefer that uh, somebody in the community think about putting this indoors, whether it's in your garage or your basement. Or I joked with one of my students as he just had a young kid. 
I said, this is a perfect system for the kids' bedroom because mm-hmm. the white noise cool. of the flood and the drain and the aeration. Um, yeah, so we, we've got these kind of systems. Um, I will also mention we've got a lot of business partnerships here yes. at the college. We have opportunities. I mean, Aaron and I, we met mm-hmm. with this idea like, oh, you grow canna lilies? Well, let's just partner. It's, it's a very unofficial with yes. you, between you and I, but it should always be a win-win situation. I grow rootstock now for canna lilies. If your crops die, you just come here and get all yours back. It's My fun. students get experience growing flowers and mm-hmm. looking at the potential. We talked about there's a potential edible flower market with a canna lily. Right. Not or a lot just, of people have tapped into. Yeah, or a very local you know, floral market. At the farmer's market, they're making a killing on flowers. Oh, yeah. And you brought in unique uh, strains. And, and so we can keep these separate in controlled environments. They're not going to hybridize. And we can right. keep these. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. Um, we look at the same systems to do things like ginger and turmeric. Um, those are going to be a push next semester. Oh, cool. So we do business partnerships. Uh, a lot of your uh, listeners may be familiar with the Farm Pod. It was a shipping container yes. with a greenhouse on top of it that was in the parking lot of La Montanilla. Yeah. We've had that now for almost two years. So that's an operation here. Uh, we have a 500-square-foot dome greenhouse from Growing Spaces up in Pagosa where we keep both aquaponic systems and hydroponic systems. Um, I have another shipping container that's uh, designed for hydroponic production um, in a very unique proprietary way. My students get experience with that. And we just built a new classroom here with grow facilities indoors. I've got a couple of different systems in here. And we've recently finished construction of a 12,000 square foot greenhouse that's going to be incorporated into a nano grid. So a lot of schools may have a 12,000-square-foot greenhouse. We have one that's off-grid. Right. So we're working with groups like Siemens to integrate this into alternative energy sources using our biofuel, for instance. So we create biodiesel off of our waste oil at the culinary department. So now we have biodiesel that can run diesel generators. It's awesome. Um, solar, wind will be a part of that as well, natural gas. Um, so very unique. And that curriculum will be part of SFCC. So the students of the future will learn how to run off-grid systems or nanogrid, microgrid systems. It's amazing. Which I think is the future. Another thing in the future is I just had a, um, a paper published with a former biospherian who lives here in Santa Fe, Mark Nelson of Santa really? Ranch. Mark and I have been colleagues for quite a while. When he was in the original biosphere, they grew fish and plants together. So he's always had this interest in aquaponics. So we just had an a abstract and a conference published. Mark's giving that this week, the presentation in California on the potential for aquaponics and biogenerative life support systems in space. So we see that future. A lot of my students are very in tune with we need to be designing systems to grow food in space, and that really stimulates them too. It's exciting. Lots of different avenues for anybody coming in here. This, at the end of the day, I say this is still farming, Uh but this is a new way of farming. Okay, But it still has the same demands as our growers out in the field right now. We have to protect our crops and give them the nutrition and all the environmental parameters for them to thrive. And so we do that, but we do it with the future in mind as well. Yeah, it seems like the perfect food security okay. program, and it makes economic sense based on yeah, everything until you Until we said. see hard times, a lot of people aren't going to wake up. Yeah. What they want to see is more Walmarts and more Costco's and more Sam's Club to get them more cheaper food. Um, we're going to run into situations where that's not the solution. And so I really appreciate your, your push towards backyard growers. Mm-hmm. Um, although I focus on commercial because I need my students to have jobs, 
uh, either creating their own facility or working for other people. I think that that small step towards backyard growers is very important. So I want to mention that not only do I have these 16-week um, classes that yeah. I do every semester, um, for the first time we're starting continuing education courses, which are one-day crash courses. So you could go to sfcc.edu and explore classes. You'll find the link to continuing education. Um, I think this just addresses the community that may be working, may have kids. They don't have time for a 16-week semester-long class, or they have no desire to get a certificate or an associate's degree, but they want the knowledge on how do we do this. And I can teach people how to grow fish and plants in a day. Uh, this fall, there's a beginning growing with, without soil. And it's an introduction to hydroponics and aquaponics, teaching you about all the parameters that we talked about here. How do we keep the plants and the fish alive? So that's a one-day crash course. That's going to be held September 22 and, and October 28. Um, again, go online to find these. We have a follow-up class the very next day, which is optional, and it is called Build a Soilless Growing System, and it's a hands-on class. So we encourage people to take the introductory day, before they take the build day. Um, the options are all available online. Continuing education, again, is how you're going to find that. Um, again, you can always reach out to me to find out about my classes, ongoing uh, curriculum, what we offer our students. Um, I can tell you about our 2 plus 2 programs where students come here and get two years of uh, their, their basics and all the hydroponic, aquaponic curriculum for mm -hmm. me, and that transfers right into another higher university. For the continuing education, I assume a lot of people from out of state would want to come. Thank you so much for all the information and Absolutely. all your time. If I could take one moment to hail up my faculty. Um, as a sole faculty member here, I rely on my adjuncts. So uh, in last October, after the hurricanes ravaged the Caribbean, my family brought seven refugees up here. They were older friends of mine. Um, many of your listeners probably know about this because we definitely got the word out in the community about seven people living with us out in El Dorado. So one family was from Puerto Rico. Uh, he was a former student. He had a beautiful farm, aquaponic farm, the only commercial aquaponic farm in Puerto Rico, and it was demolished. So he came into my home. We got them on their feet, their kids into school, and Pedro Casas Cordero. So Pedro is now an adjunct teacher with me. So he and I are about 50-50 on the teaching load. A lot of my students are now working with Pedro, and just the experience they get with a commercial grower is just priceless. Yeah, he's really cool. He's an amazing guy. And A.B. Torres, um, he was a graduate of our program and a veteran of the military, so he can relate to a lot of our veterans that come in here. A.B. is now not just my adjunct teacher working with the master's program, which is a great high school program. If your listeners don't know about it, Make sure you come talk to me about the high school program here. Uh, but Avi's also my technician and my right hand. So without those two guys right now, the place wouldn't look as good and wouldn't be what it is. So we have a dream team here. Um, awesome. And a lot of the community don't know that we're here. So thank you for the opportunity no, to let me my spread pleasure. the word and plant the seeds. Totally. And I hope yeah. we see more growers out of this small experience we just had.